0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our sermon series called Table read so instead of exploring the bible verse by verse which is our usual practice at hope what we're doing in this sermon series is exploring the entire bible really book by book one sermon at a time and we've covered a ton of ground since we began this sermon series so that in september if you were with us we started this series in the book of genesis right at the beginning and we are nearly finished now with the old testament itself last week if you were with us, we began our three-part series on what we call the wisdom books of the Bible. And we discovered that God is not calling us to be well-informed followers of Jesus, but that God is calling us actually to be well-formed followers of Jesus. We can have all the information in the world and still be foolish. We can have all the information in the world, even true information, and still not be wise. And so what God is asking us to be as His followers Are well formed people. We also learned last week that God gave us not one, not two, but three wisdom books in His Word. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And each book, if you're familiar, have a very different outlook. But we want to be well formed. And if we are to be well formed, we need all three. We need all three. And so last week, yes, we looked at Proverbs, which tries to align us to the grain of the universe as God made the world. How does God's world generally work? What is it to engage and to really align ourselves with the world that God made? And generally speaking, what we encounter in Proverbs is you reap what you sow. Generally, what you encounter with Proverbs, with a few exceptions, is the righteous prosper and the wicked or the foolish suffer. The grain of the universe. Well, today we're going to look at Job. Okay. And here's the thing about Job. This wisdom book tells us that Job was righteous in stop. He was a good man. And yet he suffers. We just got done looking at Proverbs, so we're all asking right now, what gives? Well, let's pray before we dive into that question. What gives? Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, especially on such a topic as this, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, Holy Spirit? We ask that we would encounter Jesus in His Word this morning to us. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, when I study, I need the perfect amount of distraction. Now, if you're a student right now and you're studying a lot, maybe you can relate to what I'm about to say. Too much distraction while I'm studying and I get out of sync and I can't focus. But I'll tell you what, too little distraction... And I get out of sync and I can't focus. I need the perfect amount of distraction. I need a sweet spot. And so for me, and this is different for all of you, for me, that's my local coffee shop, but with earbuds. <laughs> that's key. <laughs> And so this week I sat down to study the book of Job and I selected the perfect soundtrack to accompany my study of the book of Job. this sort of mysterious and complex book. And so what did I choose? I chose the mysterious and complex work of Bach. Right? That's what you do. So far, so good. But two things conspired against me at the same time that knocked me way out of the zone. And it's this. Number one, the Spotify server crashed. Yeah, what was up with that? Anyone else experience that? That lasted a long time. And then at the same time, the barista working at the coffee shop decided to bust out his Kenny G soundtrack. I don't know <laughs> what he was thinking. Now, apparently, I've done some looking into this. Kenny G is popular again, and so that's fine. And I'm sure there's a time and a place for smooth jazz, but I'm here to say it is not, it is not. When you are exploring the question of God and suffering. Okay. (laughs) I'm kind of (laughs) kidding. Not really. Actually, I'm not kidding. Here's why. Smooth jazz exists to be smooth. Yeah, it smooths everything over. It smooths over the hard edges of jazz. And one would argue life. And it simplifies the complexities of jazz. And one would argue, life. And Job is a book that by design resists smoothing over and simple answers to life's complexities, hard-edged mysteries, and even miseries of suffering. But isn't this what we're tempted to do every time we are confronted with suffering we simplify and we smooth first I think we simplify suffering by converting our experience into questions who what where why and when we simplify suffering by asking questions who is at fault right now me or God what did I do Where is this suffering coming from? Why is this happening? And these are all understandable questions, questions I've asked myself, but it simplifies suffering by converting it into a very simple, single, solitary question. And then it takes a simplification and then it smooths it. We smooth over the jagged edge of suffering By attempting to answer those questions. We believe there is comfort in a philosophical answer to the questions that we ask our pain. We oversimplify and we smooth over suffering. And we've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. And we know this because we see it on just about every page of the ancient book of Job. Now, the book of Job is a profound thing. And so it's criminal. It's criminal to try and summarize Job in a single message. But we have to start somewhere. (laughs) And so let's first grasp its flow. I want to grasp its flow, and I want to frame Job with a diagram, a diagram that I learned about In graduate school. And I made a sketch of it. On my notebook. The line. Look at the line. The horizontal line there. Is the creator creation distinction. That is a hard line. Okay. That is a hard line. God is God. We are not. And this. This very much by itself makes our faith unique. That line. And yet the arrow that goes down through the line, the Bible says, God's revelation says, that God comes down, that He breaks the creation-creator distinction. He approaches us in His own creation. And it's never the other way around. So that arrow is... Grace. that arrow is God's commitment to dwell with us. That arrow is even our Bible. That arrow is God speaking true things to us about himself and about this world. That arrow, you know, one reformer called the Bible, God speaking baby talk to his people. That is the arrow we see right there. The fancy word is condescension. God condescends. He comes down to us. And friends, that arrow is ultimately Jesus. Well, despite that arrow and its direction, you know, we still try to get up above that line. But we still don't get to go up there. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write probably the most theologically dense writing in all of history, the book of Romans. And yet at the end of chapter 11, say this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the, catch this word, wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths. What? Beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. So so Paul runs out of words and he starts worshiping. We could call that the Romans eleven line. God doesn't lie. He does reveal to us himself accurately but we dare not study his revelation and conclude that we have mastered God we live here God's up there well this picture here helps me understand and even maybe outline the flow of the book of Job and so what we have here is my attempt to outline the book of Job And we can understand it as the first two chapters being above the line, chapters three through 37 being what happens below the line. And then what we find in chapters 38 through 42, the very ending of Job, we see that arrow busting down. Okay, so think of that image in your mind as we go through this. The first two chapters, as you see again, are above the line. And here we see, if you're familiar with the book, Satan's suspicion that Job only obeys God for his gifts. And then we see Satan's suggestion to test Job with suffering. And yet, despite all of Job's personal and physical suffering in his first couple chapters, chapter 2, verse 10 says, and I'm quoting, Job did not sin. Now, this section... Chapters 1 and 2 establishes that Job is a righteous sufferer. Hang on to that. According to one scholar, Job is, quote, an impossible man, according to a strict worldview of reaping and sowing. I'll say that again. According to one scholar, Job is an impossible man, according to a strict worldview of reaping and sowing, because he is righteous and yet suffering. And that, friends, is the point of the first two chapters of Job. We are not allowed, and I want to say this clearly, we are not allowed to map chapters 1 and 2 of Job onto our suffering. So as to say, my cancer is because Satan doesn't think I really love God. We're not allowed to do that, because that's not the point of chapters 1 and 2. We see what happens between God and His counsel, but who does not the whole time? Job. Job does not. Why? Because Job is below the line. That's the point. And then we get to the second section, below the line. This is the bulk of Job. And this is the back and forth of Job with his friends. Job's friends, if you remember, they arrive on the scene and they see Job, and, and he's not doing well. And so what do they do? They grieve with him and they sit in silence with Job. And then they start to open their mouth. And that's when things get really sad and really becomes a bummer. And they offer all kinds of what to Job? Answers, explanations. They offer him all kinds of explanations for Job's suffering. But here's the thing. They too do not have access above the line. They didn't read chapters 1 and 2. And that's the point. Once again, they make up for that though with bold theological proclamations. And what it does is it leaves Job constantly on the defensive. And that's what we see throughout most of the book, which takes us then to chapter 38 Crossing the Line. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. Because God shows up in the whirlwind. Heard of that? He directs in this moment Job's eyes and ears. To his powerful and mysterious creation. And then God interprets Job and his friend's speech. All that we had just read for all those many, many chapters. He interprets them. He gives us his divine interpretation of all their talk, and this is what we find. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, "I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has." Catch that. Job's friends were theologically tidy. But in the end, God rebukes them for speaking falsely. Job's words were messy, very messy. And in the end, God vindicates a confused and suffering Job. Not his confident and articulate comforters. That is shocking. Are you scandalized? You should be. That is shocking. We would expect it the total opposite way, wouldn't we? But in the end, God vindicates a confused Job, not his confident and articulate friends. I think the book of Job is in our Bible so that we would press the brakes on our efforts to explain suffering. Our efforts to, as we put it earlier, smooth it over and oversimplify it with our explanations. Even our efforts to defend God in the midst of suffering. And instead, what does Job do? Job invites us to engage suffering with wisdom, not with explanations. With wisdom. In other words, there is a wise way and an unwise way to approach suffering. The unwise way we could call the way of long winded explanations. And the wise way we could call the way of the whirlwind. Long wind, whirlwind. Long-wind, whirlwind. Which is it? Let's look at each. The way of human long-winded explanations is not a wise approach. The unwise approach to suffering is the way of long-winded explanations. So Job says to his friends in 16.3, Will your long-winded speeches never end? And this is how Job's friends approach suffering, with long-winded explanations. And didn't we see how God views them in the end? He rebukes them. So there are three, ultimately four friends in the book of Job. Here's how one scholar, David Klein, summarizes their explanations, their long-winded explanations. And here's my attempt to make these long-winded explanations very short. So according to Klein, you have Eliphaz, who's basically saying you're guilty, but it'll be temporary. Especially if you're really innocent, I think you're guilty, but if you're innocent, it'll, your suffering will be temporary. And you can look these up with the references and then build that basically saying, hey, look, this is God's retribution. I know you say you're innocent, but that's not how God's world works Start. And then Zophar says God is being merciful, frankly, to just even let you live. And then Elihu comes in and says, you know what? I'm not going to say that you're suffering because you sinned. That's what they're saying. What am I going to say? I'm going to say that God is somehow using the suffering in your life to prevent you from sinning. In other words, Elihu is saying your future self will thank God for this. You hate it now, but he's preventing disaster for you down the road. Okay? So they all four have their approach to why this righteous man is suffering. But they're all four long-winded, and in the end, they don't speak truthfully. Truthfully about God, God says that Himself. <coughs> now, why is the way of long-winded explanations not the way of wisdom? Well, I think there might be a few things we could say about that. Number one, we could say it flattens out our living God. It turns our living God into a theory. And so, Job's friends, think about this. They say true things. About God, If you were to actually cut and paste things that they say in their speeches, they could be on your fridge, and they may be on your fridge. But in the end, God says they didn't speak truly about Him. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because they said true things, but in the wrong way, at the wrong time, in the wrong proportion, and frankly, in the wrong direction, too. The whole time... In the midst of all this God talk, you get the sense that they're missing God himself. They're not dealing with him. And that's the problem with long-winded answers to suffering. We say and we take true things about God, and then we flatten God out in the process. And God becomes a philosophical system. Not the triune creator and sustainer and redeemer of all things. Who is above the line? It flattens him out. It also diminishes our holy God. So God is holy. He's above the line. Amen. But Job's friends, I think, are desperately trying to climb above the line and tell Job what they see. They have good intentions. They really do. They want to defend God's characters. They want to defend God's ways. But they throw Job under the bus in the process. And the whole time you get the sense they're not worshiping God. But philosophically defending him. So here's one Old Testament scholar John Walton. He says quote. God does not need to be defended. He wants to be trusted. Long-winded speeches diminish our holy God. And they also reduce our mysterious God. Job's friends oversimplify or reduce God's ways. God who, if you grew up singing the hymn, moves in a mysterious way. Who wrote that hymn? William Cooper. William Cooper. Struggled with depression. Just like Job. God moves in a mysterious way. And Job's friends reduce God to a retribution principle. Tit for tat. Reap and sow. And these are proverbial truths about the general grain of the universe. And we neglect them to our peril. Amen. That's what we looked at last week with Proverbs. But I do agree with John Walton when when he says this. He wonders at the whole point of Job is to rest in God's wisdom, not his retribution. In other words, there's something profound going on there. In other words, what Walton is saying is that, what if God's retribution, what if God's justice, and he is just, he's perfectly just, what if God's justice is underneath his wisdom? Not as a value statement, but what if Job is trying to say, I trust your wisdom, God. I believe that you are good. I believe that you are wiser than me and that you will sort things out. And so what if Job is inviting you to rest and to trust in that living God. Not a principle of retribution. See Job presses us into the personal in a way from the impersonal. It presses us into the living God, not into philosophy about God. It presses us into trust and rest not intellectual answers and that's why it's a gift his ways are mysterious job says they are always wise they're mysterious they are always wise sometimes things happen that don't make sense of god's justice but we still trust that god is wise In St. Louis, there's a strange and wonderful place called the City Museum. Who's been to the City Museum? Do I have a hand? Okay. That's just one snapshot of this really, really hard to explain place. (laughs) And on the third floor of this City Museum, there is what's called the Bug Room. The Bug Room is someone's immense bug collection. I told you, it's a strange place. It really is. Here's the thing though, the bug room, these bugs are not alive. As you can see, these bugs are pinned against an examination board. Well, compare this bug room with one that's a little bit closer to home The butterfly room in Franklin Park Conservatory. Here in Columbus. Who's been there? Anybody been? Yes. More hands. Yes. You need to go there if you've never been there. Here you walk among bugs. You walk among butterflies. But what's the difference? Butterflies are alive. And they're moving. I had a theology professor who warned me to never pin God down to a board. When studying about him. Theology is always a humble thing. We are trying to listen well to God's word, to what God says to us. We're trying to listen well, as we would listen as well as we can to a friend who's sharing about their life or about their story over coffee. We listen hard. We listen well. We try to understand what it is that God is saying. But we never for a moment assume that we are pinning God down against the board So that we would understand him and inspect him and therefore fully grasp him. No, God is alive. He is not dead. He is alive and he has graciously and truthfully revealed himself to us. But let's not assume that in that revelation we have him pinned down. And this is, I think, the cry of of Romans 11. And it's the difference between the bug room and the butterfly room. Because the bug room, what? The bug room is a God that is pinned down, and the butterfly room is one in which he is alive. This is the difference between Job and Job's friends. Job's friends pin God down. They offer pat answers, but they did not speak truly. They were unwise. So what is the better way? What is the better way? Well, the wiser, the wiser way is the way of the whirlwind. In each of Job's speeches, you have at the very beginning of the book of Job, and if you have your Bibles, you can take a look. The very first two chapters, we hear from Job, and it is, it's is—it's very calm. I, I would argue that the, the reaction of Job to his suffering at the very beginning is almost like how it is when we confess our faith at church on Sunday. If you're here, you've been with us for a while, you know that after the sermon, we confess our faith using a written creed. And so when Job says essentially, Lord, you give and you take, and I will worship your name. Or when he says to his wife, after his wife suggests that he curse God and die, and he's just like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Because how could I? He's God. No, I, I relate to that as the moments on Sunday when we confess the faith. And then what I see because it's true, what Job was saying is true, and he believes it. Okay, But then what happens later in the poetic section of Job is what your closet prayers look and sound like. Amen? There's wrestling. There's messiness. There's questions. But who are you talking to the whole time? The Lord. You are wrestling with the Lord. You are, you are not a mocker in the words of Proverbs. You are not a scoffer in the words of Proverbs. You are actually making business with God. You are, you are wrestling with the Lord. And so Job, we see all throughout, is a longing to experience God face to face. He's wrestling with God like Jacob. And God graciously gives him and grants him his request after how many chapters? But instead of a courtroom, which is what Job expected, he got a whirlwind, a storm. And it's helpful to just read what God says when he shows up to Job. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. I will question you and you shall answer me. Fleming Rutledge helped me see what's going on here. God is not dressing down Job in this moment but dignifying Job here. So earlier, just a few chapters earlier, Bildad, the other friend, describes humanity as a maggot and a worm. What is man but a maggot and a worm, says Bildad. But as Rutledge puts it, here Job is neither a maggot or a worm, but is called forth by God and made to stand upon his feet covered in boils as he is. He is also summoned to declare, to speak back to God. The wonder is that Job is addressed by God, man to man, as it were. He is not a pitiable victim, but one who, being made in the image of God, actually corresponds to God and receives God's revelation, an honor that we are meant to recognize as remarkable. And what does God reveal in this whirlwind? God reveals in this world when two things, his creation, he says to Job, take a look at my natural world if you want to be wise in your suffering. And so if you would, just turn to chapter 39 of the book of Job, where you can listen along, obviously. I mean, this kind of sounds, honestly, when you read this, you're like, what does this have to do with Job's suffering? The Lord says, do you know when mountain goats give birth? Do you watch where the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months until they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wild. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? Verse 9. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Verse 13. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. Just imagine the ostrich right now in your brain. This will be spiritually edifying, I promise. God is saying to Job in his suffering, go to the zoo. These animals seem to have no purpose. These animals that he's describing right here, in the ancient mind especially, were thought of as almost mysterious and weird what's their purpose what is the purpose of an ostrich and if you're studying ostriches listen this is the ancient mindset i know there's a purpose what god is saying though is rhetorical he's saying these animals seem to have no purpose they're very hard to understand like a fawn giving birth very difficult to understand. And it's as if God is saying, like your suffering. Much of my world is mysterious, but it's still under my umbrella of wisdom. Isn't that? If it's still in my world, do you, do you trust me? In the words of David Klein, Job is meant to realize, quote, that the natural order is parallel to the moral order of the universe. Much of it is beyond human understanding. Some of it seems hideous, futile, and fearsome. But all of it is the work of a wise God who has made the world the way it is for his own purposes. Job apparently is already comfortable with a ton of mystery just by living in God's world and being attentive to what is in the natural world. And God is just asking him to extend that same sense of mystery and awe to his own suffering. So God reveals to him his world, but he does something else too. And here's how we'll close our town. Ultimately, what brings Job comfort is God's presence. Once God's speech is over, Job removes his hand from his mouth. And he says this in chapter 42, verse 1. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse 5, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And it's verse 6. there's some ambiguity in the Hebrew. And so scholars... Many scholars agree that verse 6 should be translated this way. Therefore, I melt. I melt. And am comforted in dust and ashes. One interpreter says that we are witnessing here. Well, we are finally witnessing here at the very end is comfort. They write, quote, in 2-1, chapter 2, verse 11, Job's three friends come to comfort him. In chapter 6, verse 10, Job takes comfort in not having denied the words of the Holy One. In chapter 7, Job claims that God will not allow his bed to comfort him. In chapter 15, Eliphaz claims to be offering the comforts of God. In chapter 16, 2, quote, Job calls his friends miserable comforters. And then in 21.34, this commentator goes on, he declares that they are trying to comfort him with empty nothings. He goes on, in 21.2, Job sarcastically offers to his friends the comfort of hearing him out. The key comes in 42.6, which we just read, now that God has spoken, Job can say that he is comforted. Now that God has spoken, he listened to his friends. And now that God has spoken, he is comforted in his Dust and ashes. Not because the dust and ashes have been removed, but precisely in his dust and ashes he is comforted. Here is Job, who has lost everything, standing with boils, but he is standing before God with all dignity. And even more, he has seen God, and it's as if that is enough. He can rest. And again, notice his suffering doesn't go away, but he is okay. His okayness is in his experience with God. I'm reminded of Joni Erickson Tata. She knows about unasked for suffering because of a diving accident that left her paralyzed early in her life. Her vision of what her life would be and then the reality of what her life was came at a crash. And when people asked her about how she keeps on believing in God... She tells a story about falling down at the foot of her driveway as a small little girl. When she skidded out on her bike at the foot of her driveway as a little girl, she cried out. But she was not, as she puts it, crying out for an explanation. She was crying out for her dad to hug her. She says, what I needed in that moment was not an explanation of how gravity and momentum works. What I needed in that moment was a hug, which is what she got. Fleming Rattledge writes, quote, the speech from the whirlwind points away from answers and explanations. Instead, it brings us into the very presence of God. The whirlwind is the hug. You see it? That's the way of the whirlwind. Like Job would cry out For the hook. This isn't the way of easy answers. The way of the whirlwind. It doesn't remove mystery. The way of the whirlwind. It doesn't remove anger and messy prayers. The way of the whirlwind. But it does give you God himself. And he is the prize. It's funny, at the very end of Job, Job gets his fortunes restored. They were taken away at the very beginning of the book. And at first glance, as you read it, it seems to blunt the force of the book. It seems to blunt the force of Job's obedience. kind of don't want his fortunes to be restored, because you're like, no, I love that Job just obeyed because he loved God. Like, I love that story. I don't want his fortunes to be restored, because now that kind of muddies it up. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Well, I struggled with that for a long time. But now I'm grateful for it, and here's why. I'm grateful for the ending of Job. Because in it, we get three things. The first thing we get, and they're all gifts. The first gift is this. Job's friends are rebuked authoritatively by Yahweh. Amen? Yes, I need that. We all need that. Number two, God is gracious to Job. So he is a restorative God. And we see that in his restoration. I need that too. But most of all, what I need is Jesus. And I see Jesus. I see Jesus in this epilogue. How? Well, how can you not see Jesus? I want to quote verse 42, 8 and 9. The Lord says, now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, speaking to Job's friends, and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept this prayer and not deal with you according to your folly." Again, he's speaking to his friends. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So what do we have here? We have a righteous man who suffers. And in the end, intercedes for his well-intentioned friends who are enemies. It's easy to say Jesus is the perfect Joe. In light of this. Who himself was perfectly Righteous. Not just a good man like Job, but without sin. And yet Jesus suffered according to God's perfect yet totally mysterious wisdom. The shame's the wisdom of the world, says the Apostle Paul. And who suffers not just for you on the cross, for our sins. To take the curse of the law in our place. Who suffers not just for you, for me, but suffers with you and with me. Friends, Jesus may not answer all your questions, but Jesus does reveal God's heart. A heart that knows suffering. And like Job, Jesus reminds us that all of our suffering is embedded in a larger story that's going somewhere. And yes, that story is going towards somewhere that involves full restoration. But just like Job, I have a hunch that that full restoration will be an afterthought. Why? Because we're going to be face-to-face. With God. And so Lord we come to you now. And like Job we wrestle. We wrestle with these questions. Some of us maybe Lord this morning. We're not walking into church. um, Expecting to wrestle with these thoughts. But here we are. Would we accept the wisdom of the whirlwind. Would we accept that way. And not settle for easy answers. But instead wrestle with you. Seek your face as Job. And Lord would you indeed show up. We praise you for your wisdom and we confess it to be good. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.